I'd like to direct your attention this evening back to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 27. And uh, the verses in particular I'd like to speak to you from are 50 to 54. Matthew 27, verses 50 to 54. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. For three years or thereabouts, Jesus had preached and taught the people about the kingdom of God and how you can enter into it. And in the course of his ministry, uh, in all that he did, he made no secret of the fact that he was the Son of God. Just as one example from Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 11 and verse 27, he says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomever the Son will reveal him. Uh, repeatedly mentioning my father there. And John's Gospel has uh, many more examples of, of that as well. And Jesus' mention of his father and that he was the Son of God uh, produced a extreme, an extremely hostile response on the part of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees. They did not like, in fact, they hated him particularly for that. Why? Uh, well, they said it was because he was blaspheming. Uh, but what was at the root of it was really the fact that they could not disprove the claims that he was making. And because they could not disprove them and the enormity of what he was claiming uh, and that threatened their hegemony, their power, their control... Uh, they felt threatened, and so they persecuted Jesus. Uh, they were jealous of him too. He taught with authority, we're told, uh, unlike them. And the common people heard Jesus gladly. They were, they were glad whenever Jesus was preaching. Not so with the scribes and the Pharisees. Great crowds followed Jesus. And of course, during the course of his ministry, he performed a lot of miracles, uh, and that got people's attention, as it undoubtedly would if that were to take place today. And those miracles all bore powerful witness to his identity as the Son of God, so that what he was claiming was uh, reinforced, supported, validated, authenticated by these signs, these miracles. They were unmistakable and undeniable proofs that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. He was the Son of God. As Nicodemus said, 
No man could have done those miracles unless God was with him. And God was with him in a unique way because he was God manifest in the flesh. But Jesus has now finished his earthly ministry and he has surrendered his life into the hands of his enemies to take him and to do with him as they please, which, as we know, was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And even as his sonship had been attested in his life, his sonship is attested in his death. And the father particularly sees to it that it is made clear that Jesus is seen even in his death to be the son of God. So we take as our theme for this evening, the son of God attested at Calvary. The son of God attested at Calvary. And we want to see how he was attested in four ways. Firstly, in the manner of his death. Secondly, in the rending or the tearing of the veil. Thirdly, the shaking of the earth. And fourthly, the liberating of the dead. The Son of God attested at Calvary, attested in the manner of his death, in the rending of the veil, in the shaking of the earth, and in the liberating of the dead. Well, as we pick this passage up in verse 50, so much has happened in just a few hours. Uh, Jesus, of course, was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, uh, was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, dragged before Caiaphas the high priest and some of the others uh, as they try and get together some kind of evidence they can pin on him that will stick, and then brought before Herod and Pilate for examinations there. And eventually, Pilate even having said that he can find nothing wrong with Jesus, he's done nothing wrong, he says. By mob rule, he is condemned to die. And they take him outside the city walls of Jerusalem to execute him with two criminals. We read that there they crucified him. So much is conveyed in so few words. There they crucified him. The nails driven in one by one, tearing through flesh and sinew and nerve endings blood vessels. Jesus accepts it all willingly. No resistance on his part, no struggle. He has given himself up to this. So he's nailed to the cross and then the cross is lifted up and put in the hole in the ground, which almost certainly at that moment would have resulted in massive dislocation of Jesus' joints. Uh, he says in Psalm 22 prophetically, I may tell all my bones we can see his bones out of joint. And then the taunting begins of him in verse 39 and so on. You that destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And then the scribes and the Pharisees, they get in on it as well and say, oh, well, he trusted in God. Let him deliver now, if he will have him. Of course, insinuating that the fact that he is still on the cross is because God doesn't want him. What cruel and wicked words they were. And then we have the supernatural darkness as Jesus Christ is cut off for the sins of his people. 
cut off from his father's presence, utterly alone as he suffers the pains of hell in his soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we reach the climactic moment really here in verse 50 because we read that Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. He cried with a loud voice. Now exactly what he said at that moment, Matthew doesn't tell us. Uh, it may be uh, the words that Luke records for us. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It may have been the words just before that that John mentions. Tetelestai, it is finished. The work is done. I have finished that which the Father gave me to do. But whether it was one of those two things or something else, Jesus said that with a loud voice and then died. And yet his death was different. The manner of his death was different to every other person that has walked the face of this earth. Before or since. And it's different for a whole number of reasons. We could uh, spend a whole evening exploring how Jesus' death was different for us or anybody else that has lived in this world but our text draws attention to the the manner of his death in this specific way that he yielded up the ghost or literally he dismissed his spirit other of the gospel writers have it that he gave up the ghost or he breathed out his spirit Isaiah in prophesying about this he said he poured out his soul unto death. He poured it out unto death. Why do I draw attention to all of this about the specific manner of Jesus' death? Well, for every other person on this earth, death comes to us. We don't really have control over when we die and how we die. The power of life and of death, death is the absence of life, does not reside with us. It resides with God. And death comes to us, sometimes unexpectedly, but <coughs> ultimately death takes us. Jesus, however, we're told, dismissed his spirit. He yielded up the ghost. His body didn't give up an exhaustion simply because of the flogging and the crucifixion, though he would have been severely affected by that. <coughs> though great, greatly weakened through all of that, he, he had just cried with a loud voice, we are told. He had cried with a loud voice. And someone who is on the cusp of death, usually their voice goes to a whisper. There's not much left. But Jesus cries with a loud voice and then dies. He chooses to dismiss his life force, to take the life that he has as a human being, and put it out so that there is no life anymore. He actively wills it. Thank you, Paul. Tickles developed in the throat. Augustine has a great quote on this. Augustine of Hippo, he says, he gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. Because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. And so by the mere power of his thought, he passes from life into death. Jesus does that. 
He yielded up the ghost. Why? Why did he die? He died to save sinners like you and me. There was no other need for him to die. There was no other need for him to live and to come into this world other than that uh, the Trinity had looked from eternity past at this great mass of humanity and we're told that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And the only way whereby you and I could have that everlasting life was for Jesus to give up his life and die. And out of sheer love, that is what Jesus said he would do. And so no man could take that life from him. He gives it up of his own accord. He knows he has suffered. He's done everything necessary for uh, the work of redemption. And so he bows his head and he dies. And as he dies, he dies amidst the ridicule of the crowd, of the scribes and the Pharisees and all of these others that were around the cross. He dies amidst ridicule them casting aspersions on who he really was, uh, saying, if he's the Son of God, tell him to come, let him come down from the cross. But of course, because he was the Son of God, he had to stay on the cross. Is this really the Son of God that, just, that has just died upon the cross? Well, yes, absolutely yes, it is the Son of God, because of the way in which he has just died. The two thieves are still struggling and gasping for breath as you would do upon a cross they've only been crucified a few hours and some victims survived for days upon a cross until they broke the legs of course and that speeded up the death but Jesus has dismissed his life and so the father is showing even in the manner of his death that yes this is my son but besides the darkness that has already gripped the land for three hours, other remarkable signs follow. And the first of these was the tearing of the curtain in the temple, or the rending of the veil. Now children here this evening, I wonder if you remember what this veil was. Um, you remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, uh, Moses was told he had to make a tabernacle. And there was a specific uh, design given for that. Uh, plans were drawn up by God as to how that was to be made. And then later that was the pattern for how the temple was made. And the temple uh, in Jerusalem had three main areas. Uh, there was the inner court, as it was called. And only Jews uh, could go there. It was barred to the Gentiles. And the Jews could only come there if they were bringing a sacrifice. And that was the place where the brazen altar or the altar of burnt incense was. And so you would come with your uh, two pigeons or, or, or uh, a lamb, whatever sacrifice you were bringing, and the priest would meet you there and the offering, the sacrifice would be made. Beyond the inner court lay the holy place. And in the holy place, only the priests could enter. Uh, and in the holy place was that seven-branched candlestick, often called a menorah now, I think, uh, a golden altar on which incense was burned and the table of showbread. That was in the holy place. 
But beyond that, the third part of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And when Solomon built the temple, the Ark of the Covenant was placed there in the most holy place. And the only person who could go into the most holy place, children, was the high priest. So Aaron and all those that followed after him. And he could only go on one day of the year. So 364 days of the year, you could never go into the most holy place. But only on one day, the Day of Atonement. And you could only go in with the blood of the Lamb. And he would go there to sprinkle it upon the mercy seat as a propitiation to turn away God's anger against his people for their sins. That was done every year. But of course, by our, the time of our Lord Jesus' day, there was no ark in the temple because it had disappeared. And there's all sorts of theories as to what has happened to the ark. There is a passage in Revelation which refers to it. Uh, but certainly in Jesus' day, the ark wasn't there. But what separated uh, the Holy of Holies from the most holy place, and this is where I must get back on track, was the veil or the curtain. And this was an amazing curtain. You've never seen a curtain like it because the Jewish historians tell us that this curtain was 60 feet long, 18 metres if you want that in metric, I think, at a rough approximation, and 30 feet wide, so 9 metres wide, and it was as wide as your hand in thickness. What a curtain. Uh, and that was there hanging in the temple, right down to separate the holy place from the holiest of all. Why was that there? Why do you think, children, God put a big curtain in his temple? And why do you think only one person could go in there and that only once a year on a special condition of taking the blood of a lamb. Well, God was showing that because we are sinners, we cannot just approach him any old how, and that there is a natural barrier between us and God because he is holy and we are sinful. He cannot be approached just by anyone. It was a marker of separation because God cannot and will not tolerate our sin. And yet here, at the moment Jesus dies, we read about this curtain that it was torn from top to bottom. The whole curtain, the whole 60 foot of it was torn. So it was a complete tear, not just a little rip in it, but the whole thing torn in half. And notice also in our text that it tells us it was torn from top to bottom. The top tore first, and then went down to the bottom. Clearly an act of God, coming from above. God miraculously caused this curtain, thick as it was, and you can just imagine trying to tear it with your hands. I mean, you just wouldn't be able to do it. It was that thick. Why did God tear it? Well, he tore it to show that through the death of his son, the way into the holy place of all, even the very throne room of heaven, was now open. Because all had been done that was needed for you and I to enter. Jesus died as God's law required. And by his death he has opened up a new and a living way. To go to his father in heaven. That is what Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 tells us. Having therefore brethren boldness to enter 
into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And so that is why we're able to meet and worship God here today. We don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't need to bring a lamb for an offering because Christ has died and God showed it, showed that it was his son, showed that this was the Messiah by tearing the veil from the top to the bottom. We are no longer barred as we ought to be. We deserve to be barred from God's presence forever. But God sent his son to die on the cross. And at that moment that Jesus breathed out, he tore the veil to show that there was no need for the sacrificial system anymore. Caiaphas, the high priest, was out of a job. It was finished. It was done. There is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. And God showed that this was his son, that he was the Christ that all might believe by tearing this veil in two. But at the same time, as this veil was torn in two, and can you just imagine the reaction of the priest? This was in mid-afternoon. They'd been in the temple doing their priestly duties, and suddenly they notice, as they're in the holy place, this has been torn. But at the same time, the ground shakes violently with an earthquake. Now, the occurrence of an earthquake in Jerusalem is not that remarkable, because it lies on what is known as the uh, Great Rift Valley. And there's a seismic ridge which has got Jerusalem on it. And so uh, earthquakes do happen there in that part of the world fairly regularly. But it happened at this specific point in time, as it did, you remember, at Jesus' resurrection. Matthew 28 and verse 2 records that. Why an earthquake? Well, in Scripture, earthquakes have a theological significance. That is the show that God is acting, that he's doing something. Uh, that is why I read to, to us earlier Psalm 18 and verse, uh, verses 3 to 7 are relevant here. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Uh, and here you can see how this could be applied to the cross. The sorrows of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death went before me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God, as Christ did upon the cross. He heard my voice out of his temple. My cry came before him, even into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth because he was angry. In the prophets, uh, an earthquake is represented as God coming in judgment. And that is what is just happening here. God is sending a signal of judgment. They just killed the Prince of Life. What a wicked act. And Peter will face them with that 50 days' time on the day of Pentecost killed the prince of life. But we can go further than that. There was not only judgment for those who had actually murdered him. 
God was judging his son. That is what was happening. The judgment that should have been upon you and upon me, God said, no, I'll put it upon my son. I'll judge him. The darkness and the earthquake show very clearly that God was acting in justice and he was satisfying his justice so that he might show us mercy. And this earthquake tore the rocks apart for vivid testimony to what was taking place. This is what your Saviour did for you, my dear Christian friend. He took God's judgment upon himself. He took that cup. And he saw what was in it. it. The anger of God against sin. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He could see what was involved in it. All your sin, all my sin. And the judgment that that deserves. The cup that my father has given me, shall I not drink it? And he did drink it, down to its last bitter dregs. And that judgment that he experienced is evidenced by this earthquake. That which would have sunk you and I to the lowest hell. The undiluted, unmixed wrath of God, Jesus took. The rocks split apart. Oh, my friends. In the face of such things, should our hearts not split apart? Should we not break our hearts before the Son of God in realisation of what the Saviour has done for us? May God forgive us that we can remain so stony in the face of such dying love, such agony that he took upon himself for his people. But fourthly and finally this evening, we see the liberating of the dead the veil had been rent the ground had been shaken so violently that deep cracks and fissures appeared in the rocks but God was not yet finished attesting his son following the earthquake yet more astonishing things happened we read uh, that the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Apparently, as a result of the earthquake, uh, a, a lot of the tombs in the area were opened up. Now, with a really violent earthquake, that might not be that surprising. I mean, after all, uh, the rocks were split. So, yes, you might uh, think, well, uh, tombs, particularly those that were above ground, they'll open up as well. But even a heaven-sent earthquake can't account for what follows after that. Because Matthew records, and he's the only one that gives us this detail, that there was a resurrection of the dead. And whilst it's not absolutely clear, it does seem that this resurrection of these people out of the graves happened at the point of Jesus' death, not on the third day. Now, because nothing else is said about this in the New Testament, these details have puzzled scholars uh, and commentators for centuries. And the chief difficulty often uh, seems to revolve around, well, if these people were resurrected on Good Friday, but they didn't go into Jerusalem, the holy city, until uh, Easter Sunday, what were they doing in between? Uh, who knows? Matthew does not tell us. 
uh, either they remained in their tombs in that, that time or they were walking around in the, uh, outside the city limits. We can't be sure. And we need to rest such speculation there, uh, knowing that one day uh, we trust God will tell his people all these sorts of things. The fact of it is sufficient. And what Matthew appears to be telling us through this that it was not only Jesus' resurrection that was instrumental in our resurrection and raising the dead, but Matthew wants to know us that Jesus' death is key in this as well. All these people that were in the graves, they were under the power of death, and yet Jesus, in dying, causes them to spring up to life again. He not only took away God's judgment, that was against us because of our sin, but he defeated death. He defeated death. That's what Hebrews 2.14 tells us. It was this purpose that he took upon himself our human nature, that he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. He conquered death. And as it were, God the Father says, I want you to see a demonstration of this right now. Yes, there's coming a day when there'll be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Every single person that's ever lived, every unborn child, every aborted child will be resurrected. Those who've died in the sea, those who've been blown apart by bombs, everyone will be resurrected. That will happen. But at this moment, God says, I want you to know the power, the efficacy that there is in my son's death, that he is my son, and so he raises these from the dead. And we read that after Jesus' resurrection, they went into Jerusalem, that is the holy city, uh, and were visible proof of Jesus' mighty work. Can you imagine it? There's some poor widow in Jerusalem. She mourns the loss of her husband of many years and then one day there's a knock at the door and she opens the door it looks like my husband it can't be it can't be but you, she touches him and talks to him you know, gives him something and it is just astonishing absolutely astonishing she should get her neighbours around and my husband's back. How? What happened? Now, what happened after that, <coughs> again, we don't know. There's various speculation on what happened to these people. Um, did they live a little bit longer and then die again, like Lazarus would have done, and Jairus' daughter would have done? Uh, or some say, well, no, that just wouldn't, and Matthew Henry is among them that says this, this wouldn't really have honoured what Christ had done, that they had the, the proper resurrection, they were united body and soul, and they were ascended to heaven with Jesus. I don't know. We could talk about that afterwards. That would be a good topic for discussion, perhaps. But what is central here is what it says about our Lord Jesus. We mustn't move away from that. He is Lord both of the dead and of the living. Romans 14 and verse 3. Lord, both of the dead and of the living. That he has power over death. That he has broken the power that death has upon us. 
And the father demonstrates his sonship by this remarkable miracle, raising of these saints, these godly Old Testament people that had been asleep for how long we don't know, but raising them from the dead. Christ got the victory over death. He defeated death. Now we live in a culture that is, particularly the last two years, has been almost obsessed about avoiding death. And it is the one thing we'd love to have an answer to, uh, to be able to stop death. But nobody's been able to do that because man does not have the power over death and God will not give it to anyone apart from his son. Or even to bring people back from the dead. We'd like that, wouldn't we? But God won't give it to anyone apart from his son, Jesus Christ. We all have to die. No authority over death whatsoever. Far bigger and stronger than us. But Christ has gotten the victory so that if we are in him, then it is not really death to die. We then sleep in Jesus until he comes again and resurrects his people to be with him forever. A sign is something that points to something. Signs out on the road to tell me how to get to Sheffield. Miracles intended were intended for that purpose. Uh, what happened here was miraculous. The earthquake, the rending of the veil, and these graves being opened and the bodies of the saints uh, being resurrected. What did all these things point to? Well, they pointed to the truth of Jesus being the Son of God. The very thing that was being disputed at the cross. God said, I hear what you're saying. You're challenging, you're questioning whether he is my son. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to show you, demonstrate through these signs that he is my son. How could he be the son of God, they asked. Heaven answered with uh, awe-inspiring succession of miracles. If you like, this was like the Mount of Transfiguration again, or like the baptism. There's no audible voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, but the signs speak as powerfully and as clearly with the same message. And of all people, it was the Roman soldiers that heard and understood the message first. That's a, amazing, isn't it? To think of all the people that were around the cross. There was disciples afar off, the women were close around, the Apostle John we know was nearby. There's all the religious people, all the Jews, but it's the Roman soldiers. And hearing and seeing and experiencing all these phenomena, they first of all realised what it is. And there's a big change in attitude for the centurion and the soldiers. They had been just hours before laughing and taunting, mocking Christ, putting a reed in his hand, crown of thorns upon his head, clothed in scarlet. Hail, King of the Jews! Look at your King! They're terrified now. Absolutely terrified. Scared out of their wits. And now as they look up at the cross, which has just got a lifeless corpse upon it, Centurion and the others that are with him say this, 
truly this was the Son of God. It was the Son of God. All you have said it wasn't, it was. No doubt in their minds at all, no uncertainty, without question, this was God's Son. And as we are here this evening, that is one question that faces all of us. Questions put in the Bible itself, in Matthew indeed, Matthew 22 and verse 42. What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? There is only really one answer to that question. He is God's son. But do you know that? Do you believe that? Can you say with a centurion, yes, truly that was, and that is, even today, that is God's Son. And I, I know it because he's shown it to me. Is Jesus the Son of God in your estimation this evening, my friend? Perhaps you've never really considered it before. Maybe like the soldiers, you've made fun, at least in your mind, of Jesus Christ and Christianity and all of that. It's all old nonsense, isn't it? That's what some people think. But how do you explain the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's historical fact. There's no getting away from it. Someone has commented that there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the life of Julius Caesar. You wouldn't doubt the life of Julius Caesar for one moment, so why would you doubt the resurrection of Christ? He died freely, voluntarily, for sinners, and took back that life again on the third day so that he might give that life to you and to me so that we might live forever and not die. If you now see that he is the Son of God, then tell him, pray to him. Say, I've seen things now in a way that I've never seen them before. I see that you are the Son of God. I need you, Jesus Christ, as my Saviour. Save me from my sins even as you have died for me. Ask him to save you. And for us that are his, that belong to him, may we ever live in such a way that our lives demonstrate, as God demonstrated, that Jesus is the Son of God. May that be resplendent in all of our lives.